Hi everyone, Ben Eisner here. Welcome to another episode of Knitted Heart, where I talk with endlessly curious masters of their craft about their passions, professions, and their shared hope to bring unity, reconciliation, and a reframing of public discourse through their work. Today's episode is the first of a two-part series with the Emmy Award-winning director, Joan Darling. I have to say that this conversation was definitely a doozy for me personally, as you'll hear more about Joan's philosophy on truly being in the moment and putting yourself out there without a clue of whether or not it's going to be good. You'll notice in my first two episodes that I sought to channel an NPR journalism style because, let's face it, who doesn't love listening to Terry Gross or Audie Cornish? But I realized, fuck it, I'm neither Terry or Audie, I'm me. And instead of me feeling the need to edit down this perfectly polished interview, I need to let go and allow you to absorb the spirit, the cadence, and the space filled with lots of ums and false starts in the conversation because that's how we communicate in real life. So why did I decide to dedicate two episodes to Joan? I guess you'll have to practice the old school virtue of delayed gratification. Trust me, it'll be worth it. So in an age when none of us know it's really around the corner, here's to letting go of my illusory desire to make you think that I've got my shit together and letting you listen in on this beautiful conversation with this most beautiful person. So without further ado, the all-knowing Joan Darling. Hmm, let me look again. Uh, start video. Now, there. Oh, Shazam! Thanks for doing this, Joan. Oh, you're so welcome. I really loved listening to the one with Russell. That was fascinating. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Russell's... um one of my closest friends and he's just this deep well of just zen philo- philosophical wisdom you know i don't know right yeah well it, really... it was fascinating because uh, a lot of times people ask me a lot about um the meisner method and mm. uh, and there's a lot of funny stories connected with that one being that the book that uh, my, that sandy wrote uh was not really what he did that he wrote his partner in life his life partner said you've never made any money off of this he said so you should write a book so he just made up a book that worked you know but the actual method if he studied with somebody who understood it the way russell Mm. described it is exactly the purpose of it Mm. good i spent four weeks with you on the sundance institute class um about directing actors and my big takeaway uh, um, from my interaction with you is uh, you just kind of radiate this generosity and kindness and um, love for wanting people to make it. I don't know. Yeah. You, just, you just have this really beautiful thing about you that draws the best out of people and, and makes them believe in themselves. Um, it's just really, really... Uh, an honor for me to get to talk to you more in depth about all that. So, Oh, I really appreciate that. That means an enormous amount to me because, you know, it's like, uh, it comes from such a simple place, which is mm. if I, if I, somebody tells me something cool or I find something that's really cool, I am so excited about it. I will tell it to the postman if I can't find somebody to tell it to. And I think <laughs> all my life, one of the great joys of my life is passing on something that really works Mm. to hear something that really works 
uh, in any discipline. Um, and, and, you know, I went on a quest to learn acting first and then directing uh, because where I went to college, I went to Carnegie when it was Carnegie Tech and it was conservatory school, but I was always just, you know, like a terrier mm. <laughs> sinking my teeth into my teacher's legs saying, yes, I know that's what you're telling me to do, but how do you do it? Mm. And until I found the teachers, they could teach me out. And once I realized that there was a way to teach how you did it, then uh, it was just wonderful. And I, you know, I think you tuned into something that's very important to me was that I become very, feel very connected and very attached to the people I'm working with mm. on a personal level. You know, I feel, and, and it's, uh, and I feel like we have great fun together, you know? That's what it's all about, right? Yeah, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, oh, oh, it's funny, because I, I, is it safe for me to say that you were maybe one of the founders of improv comedy? Yes. <laughs> I'm the second level. There was a whole generation that came out of Chicago and St. Louis that mm -hmm. Mike and Elaine were part of. Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Yeah. And Elaine, probably with Ted Flicker, created the methodology of doing it mm -hmm. well. And Viola Spolin, this is another one, that was her book was the one that everybody uh, used in the early days. But again, her book was sort of like Sandy's book. And this is one of the things I think that you tuned into in the teaching when, in our exchanges was, it's very easy to say, if you always do this, you will get that. Right. However, it has nothing to do with art. Hmm. It only has to do with being an artist's son. That's my husband's definition. But if hmm. you're gonna be an artist, <clears throat> you have to be hanging out there in the wind and have no idea how it's really gonna work out. So. Ted and Elaine took it to a much deeper level. And, uh, and then, of course, Mike and Elaine made it uh, worldwide popular. When they came, my, the, my, the person who I worked for, Ted Flicker, who came out of that St. Louis, Chicago group, uh, Ted came to New York with Mike and Elaine to present them in a show to create a company. And his investors fell through. So Mike and Elaine, in order to earn a living, mm. uh, started doing nightclubs. And they were just a huge success. But it was just desperation because Ted had wanted to do it in the theater. So then a couple of years later, Ted decided to put together an improvisational theater in New York, uh, which was the premise, which was the one that I was in. And we were the first real theater in New York. Um, and it had in it, uh, a guy named Tom Aldridge, who was in the original on Golden Pond, myself, Jim Frawley, um, Buck Henry, uh, uh, Gene Hackman, Ron Liebman at various times. So it was a hell of a company. Um, it must have been a blast to just kind of feel like you were in on kind of a groundswell of something that was probably a departure from shakespeare and all that you kind of perhaps were originally influenced by and attracted to in acting i mean did it feel like kind of a little bit of a rebellion um or i, I don't know <laughs> if it's rebellion or celebration like what was it about improv that you're like oh this is amazing yeah well that was a celebration is a fabulous word <clears throat> well i came to new york primed to be a shakespearean actress 
Now, that was as smart as mine to be a blacksmith in, in New York City. <laughs> the, the career opportunities were not limitless. But I was really, I was really good at Shakespeare. And I ended up playing a lead at uh, the, the American Shakespeare Festival in Stratford when it was there. And I played a whole bunch of leads out in Ashland. Um, so I, I came to New York to be... Um, that was, you know, and I sneered at television and I sneered mm. at films and I sneered at commercials until I needed to earn a living. And then a friend ah. of mine who was very successful in commercials, a woman named Barbara Feldon, who played Agent 99 on Get Smart, just took me aside and said, I'm putting a wardrobe on a hanger and this is how you go get commercials. So I earned my living with the commercials. But when the improvisational theater came up, and I just read an article of an interview of Ted Flicker, who was the one who put together our company, um, a girlfriend of mine who had worked in St. Louis with Ted said, if you ever do improvisational theater, you need to audition Joan, Joan Darling. And um, so I went in to audition for him. And the very first thing I did, he just stopped the improvisation and said, you're hired. <laughs> because... It was like, I, it was like I was born to do that. Absolutely born to do it. I never had a moment's fear. I just went, oh, give me the, I was like a shortstop. Give me the ball, give me the ball, give, give me the ball. ball. Come on, put me in. Yeah, coach. give put me the ball. <laughs> and so, uh, and then when we opened the show, the original company was George Siegel, myself, Ted Flicker, and Tom Aldridge. Tom's name won't be known. He was very big at the public theater. Um, he won uh, Tony's. Um, he was an incredible actor. Um, and like I say, he was the original uh, guy in On Golden Pond when it opened on Broadway. Um, and the, the company was, I had never had so much fun in the theater. And I think part of it was, and this relates back to what Russell had to say, I loved the experience of being um of expressing myself through another person. Loved it. Loved the language, the Shakespeare language, et cetera, et cetera. But I always felt like there was something about the acting that I didn't really quite understand. Mm. And the improvisational theater, as soon as I got into that, I, I understood it. And I can, I can tell you an anecdote about an acting teacher, great acting teacher named Michael Howard, who had a studio in the city, still, his studio was still there, he just passed away. But the essence of, of the acting that was missing from what I understood of it, I got from Michael and then it came to fruition in the improvisational theater because I, I did a scene in Michael's class where it was a love scene between two, a guy and a girl in her apartment and they're, you know, she, and they're, she's lying on the bed talking to him. And I used, there was a bench in the studio. So I'm lying on this bench and I, I turn over and I fall off the bench. And I get back up and go right on with the scene, just as I had been trained. You couldn't throw me. I was Stay perfect. in character, baby. Yeah, you go, boy. <clears throat> when, when the scene finished, Michael said to me, Joan, he said, you fell off the bench. And I said, yeah. He says, Joan, you fell off the bench. And I said, well, yeah, but you know, he says, Joan, you fell off the bench. 
And I went, oh my God, if I were in, and here comes the tie in, if I were in a set of given circumstances mm. where I was having a conversation with a guy I really cared about, was tentative, hoped and liked me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and I fell off the bed, the opportunity of how much would happen to me as I dealt with it, and here's the thing, inside the set of given circumstances, mm. my, the acting class was where I was, the given circumstances that I was working in was uh, uh, being with some guy that I really wanted to impress and like. Right. I, I just went, oh my God, what a great moment. And that's what Russell was referring to by being honest with myself about what actually happened and allowing mm. it to be part of the imaginary given circumstances. You know, guess what I was yeah. doing? I was acting as if I were alive. Yes. And okay. <laughs> that, okay. So would you say this huge shift from Shakespeare, 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 right. To truly working off of what your scene partner is giving you. And what's happening kind of... inside my, and what's happening inside myself at this moment in time. That was the big shift. It that was that it. one uh, it, it, when in your training Shakespeare, right? Yeah. Was there any background or, you know, kind of uh, exercise for you to be able to stir up what's really going on inside of you? Or is it literally down to the cue and the line and the mark and waiting? for It's your, a your combination. Partner? Yeah, it's a Shakespeare's like grand opera. If you're really going to do Shakespeare well, first thing you have to do is learn the music as you would mm. in grand opera. Okay. And I've, I've taught Shakespeare a lot, and there were only two of us that I know of who ever really knew how to teach Shakespeare in my era, and that was Bill Ball, who founded ACT, and myself, because he taught me. But what the job in Shakespeare is to one, really understand the verse, two, to understand, because Shakespeare's incredible. If you really know how to do the verse, he will tell you when to pause mm. because he has an extra foot at the end of a five iambic line. There's another half an iambic and that half an iambic forces you to breathe. So if mm. you stick with the rhythm of what he's actually written, it starts to affect you internally. That's the one thing that's that's. Mm. That's the value of it. And the other, but then the rest of the job is the regular acting job. The rest of the job is the other half of the, of what my, the, I'm dying to pass this on to Russell because I'm dying for him to know this. Oh, <laughs> he may know it already, but there was a big argument in the group theater between Lee Strasberg and Sandy Meisner. Lee said, you need to wake up the, the experiences from your life that are appropriate to the moment and play out of them. And Sandy said, you need to be alive in the moment and aware of yourself and go moment to moment with yourself. Well, they had a big schism, but the bottom line is they were both right. Hmm. And you don't really do great acting until oh. you have taken the events from your life that are appropriate given circumstances for the play. They don't have to be literal. But if it's a wow. scene about betrayal, 
then I looked through my a catalog through my life. A wonderful um, acting teacher, Warren Robertson, who taught for years in New York, was also a great teacher, said you scan the catalog of your life and you find the equivalent experiences. Then the whole sense memory stuff you, uh, you, is the method methodology of bringing that from the back of your brain, where it's mm -hmm. resting and sleeping, to the forefront. And the example I use in a class is if you are in the middle of a horrible divorce and you get a script that's about being in the middle of a horrible divorce, you don't have to do anything but show up. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But two years later, after you're no longer paying alimony and you've married somebody else and your life is very happy, that's tucked away in the back of your brain. And the sense memory is the tool that brings it, not so that you think you're in the middle of the divorce again, but it's like any memory that gets triggered. You know, you go by and you smell someone's perfume and you go, oh, I miss them, you know? So it's, it's utilizing that, which is, and putting it together with being able to play ball. And what I loved about the improvising was, the, and that's taught me so much about the directing. The improvising taught me to be able to hear my intuitive impulses in a given moment while I was doing it. And then when I got into the directing, I discovered, as we talked about in the class, that if I really knew what my story was, I could trust what was going on inside me moment to moment. And then the big discussion that we had is, all the preparation in the world, great, use it, fall back on it, create it exactly mm -hmm. the way you want it to look, but leave some space to hear that intuition where the ideas that are better than your conscious mind can think up, that's where they come from. So it's, it's literally about trust. It's about trust. And yeah. would you say that's probably the number one thing an actor is the most horrified about um trusting and just giving themselves to that moment instead of just being so well rehearsed that they're waiting for their cue yeah and how they're going to recite the line uh yeah you have to trust it but you have to pay your dues you have to mm. build the foundation of the work as an actor mm. you have to have woken up the events that are similar to the given circumstances of the play the rehearsal time allows time for them to weave themselves together. And then you have to be able to open the door, walk in and see what happens. And of course, it's exactly what we do in life. You know, if you're going to go to a, uh, a, a meeting with your lover and you're, you get in the car and you say, oh, I can't wait to see him. He smells so good. And I, I love the way he touches my face. And oh, maybe he'll have cooked me some duck or something like that, you know, that's all sense memory of what it's been like with him in the past. Hmm. And then when you're acting, you open the door and anything can happen. He, you open the door and he can say, oh, I'm sorry, we're breaking up, <laughs> you know, and, and then you've fallen off the bench. And then you've fallen off the bench. That's why a show that runs month after month after month, every single performance can be different. Exactly. Exactly. And it's why every single take can be different. Hmm. You know? Yes. It, yeah. Yes. And he, uh, who was it? Uh, Michael Caton Jones said, who directed This Boy's Life, who was one of the Sundance advisors and a wonderful guy. And he said the real problem in making that picture 
pieces. One was they chose to shoot in Panavision, which means it's you have to get it right because it was so hard to keep it in focus and all of that stuff. Very expensive to do a lot of takes. But <clears throat> first time De Niro got on the set, he said De Niro did take one, which was brilliant. Then he did take two, which was completely different and totally brilliant. Then take three. And Michael said he was standing on the set and went, oh, shit. He went, I, I, can't, I can't just do three takes with this guy. That would be right. insane. You're giving me gold. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah, because then pretty much being present to working off the present circumstances of what your scene partner is giving you gives you an unlimited amount of yeah. possibilities to where it could go, right? Yeah. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Um, okay, so I actually would love to talk to you about you. You're literally were one of the first female directors in in TV in in the '60s, right? In, in around yeah. 1964. Um, how how did that culminate? Like, I can only imagine the the landscape um, and male domination was like. It, it was probably white men probably had a firmer grip on even the entertainment industry even more than they do now. Yeah. What did it take for you to kind of push through and be like, no, I'm the right person for this. Was it just well, happenstance? What? T- tell me about that. It's actually a great story. <clears throat> I had no interest or thought about directing. I never had any ambition for it. I got over thinking I could be a Shakespearean actress and was moving on and doing all kinds of, doing television and stuff like that. And I got on a television series and the series was winding down. And um, I knew that I had what in those days was TVQ, which is the equivalent of many likes on your face page. Mm. Um, And they used TVQ for giving out jobs in those days. Uh, And I knew Norman Lear. So I thought, I would love to do a 90 minute movie on the life of Golda Meir from the time Beautiful. she was 16 to 60. Then it, cause it's a fabulous story, absolutely fabulous story. So I put together the structure of the story and I went to see Norman and I said, you know, I would love to do a 90 minute movie of Golda Meir and here's how the story works. And he looked at me and he said, wait a minute. He said, I want you to tell this to my second in command. And I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna get to do this. Um, And in came a man named Al Burton, who was Norman's right-hand person through his whole career. And he said, tell Al what you just told me. And I told Al the whole story. And Norman turned to Al and said, I think she's the one. And Al said, I think you're right. And Norman turned to me and said, how would you like to be a director? And I said, well, I'm not a director. And he said, I think that's what you really are. Powerful. So he gave me these two pilot scripts called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Seen it. (laughs) Yeah. And he said, look at them and see if you want to do them. And I I thought, well, you know, I'm Hartman looking. I went and read them. And at first I thought, this is... I don't know what this is. This is like, it's either hilariously funny or it's not funny at all. I don't know what it, mm. And then I went, oh my God, I know what this is. This is really different. Mm. And then I said, 
I went back, had a meeting with Norman, and <laughs> I said to him, um, you know, I don't think this is a takeoff on a soap opera. That's what he told me. It was going to be a takeoff on a soap opera and be on at four in the afternoon was the plan. I said, I don't think that's what this is. I think this is a piece about how television is destroying America. Wow. And he said, I said, I don't know that I could do somebody else's concept because mm -hmm. I haven't directed, but I'm pretty sure I could bring my own concept to life. And he said, well, I didn't know we wrote that, <laughs> but if you could do it, I would love it. So then listen to this about Norman Lear. The next thing that happened was we started casting. We both agreed immediately on who was perfect for Mary Hartman, which was Louise Lassen. Mm -hmm. um, and then we spent eight weeks casting. I was involved in every minute of the casting and nobody was cast unless I wanted them. Can you imagine that? Unbelievable. In like that they, day, carte blanche access carte for blanche. freedom. Unless, yeah, unless we, we would see them and we would talk. And as a matter of fact, one of the most famous characters, Sergeant Foley, I had a whole other idea about how he should be used in the film. So I brought in a guy in his 30s. Norman had pictured him as a cop in his 60s. But he said to me, isn't he supposed to be 60? And I said, well, I think this will be really interesting if he isn't and Norman said okay he said I'll give you that one so he gave me that then he we got the company together took eight weeks to cast it I was working like eight hours a day looking at people and then showing them to Norman um, and then he said I'm going on vacation <laughs> he said I'll be gone for two weeks so you rehearse the show so I said okay so we started doing everything. Louise mainly would do rewrites on the scripts, which really made it Mary Hartman, plus my sensibility, the two of us together. We rehearsed it, the, the two pieces, for two weeks. And I said to the company, I said, look, this is what we love and want to do. So this is not just showing Norman. We have to do it so well when he looks at it that he buys it and lets us do it this way. And I was from New York, so I didn't know you weren't supposed to change any words. <laughs> I, did, I just didn't. So then Norman comes back, takes a look at it, and absolutely can't believe it. He adores it. Wow. So the next day we start in, and he's hired somebody to do the camera work. And I'm watching this show be set up for a whole day, and I'm looking at it, and I said, this is just awful. This, this, is, this is not a profession for me. This is, and at the end of the day, Norman came up to me and said, what do you think of this camera work? And I said, oh, Norman, I said, I don't know whether I've directed the worst thing in the world or the best thing in the world. I said, and I don't know anything about camera work, but this just looks terrible to me. He says it is. He says, I, I want you to do the camera work. And I said, well, wait a minute. Wait. I don't know anything about cameras at all. And then I couldn't stop myself. I said, but if the way you should shoot this is you see the three of them at the table and then you see her when she tells the joke and then you see their reaction to it and then you come back while the three of them are, and then you do it and I'm just going on. He says, that's exactly right, go do it. So he left me alone for another two weeks in the booth with the, at my actors. He put the same Albertan to sit behind me so if I got in trouble, I could turn and say, what should I do? Hmm. 
being who I am, I never turned and said, what should I do? <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then we shot the shows. Norman was very pleased with them. We shot the shows. And then get this, he said to me, I want you to edit the show. I said, I don't know anything about editing. He said, that's where you're going to learn to be a director. Whoa. Can you believe that? Wow. That and is then, incredible. It was absolutely incredible. Norman was really amazing. He was way ahead of his time. He was the first, one of the first people to hire a woman executive. And he went headhunting and found a woman named Virginia Carter, who was working for NASA and lured her over to his company. So he was looking for a woman director. He was, he was actively looking for that. What was it, do you think? What element was he on the search for that he says, yep, I need a woman to direct this? Like, what was it, do you think, in his well, mind, was a, from his perspective? I think it was a soap opera. Okay. Yeah, you know, it was a soap opera. And I think he wanted, and he used a lot of women writers um, that before it was fashionable. I think he really just was active in the cause for women that he really wanted to bring women into the business. Smart man. Needless smart man. Say, I think yeah, very smart man. man. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, um, and what happened with the show, and this is really another thing about Norman, is Norman had four of the top 10 shows on the air at the time. Four of the top 10 network shows. Every single network executive turned down Mary Hartman, which infuriated him. Fred Silverman said, this is the best acted, best directed show I've ever seen. And it will never see the light of day as a television show because it was so original in its time. Nobody'd seen acting like that. That's no surprise. Nobody, yeah, nobody knew as much about acting who was directing television as I did. So I created this company of actors who all knew how to, how to play ball and all of that. So, um, so he couldn't get it on the air. And in the meantime, what happened to me is that my agent showed it to Grant Tinker and his group of producers, which was Jim Brooks and Alan Burns and that whole gang. And they hired, they wanted to hire me for a whole season. They called, and my agent called me poolside in Palm Springs. <laughs> and they said, are you sitting down? And I said, why? And they said, we showed the pilots to Grant Tinker and they want to hire you for a whole season at MTM. And that was where I, this is the moment I think I'm the most proud of myself. I sat there and said, oh, I'm not a director. I won't be a director. That was just a fun thing to do. And then I went, you know, there's no woman directing. Hmm. I'm going to take this job for one year and then I'll go back to acting. Because I had two older brothers hmm. and there was no way you could convince me that I couldn't lead a team. And so I, I did it. Good on so, you. Get yeah, on you. Yeah, yeah, I really, because I really felt this is this is ridiculous. There's no reason why a woman can't direct, but I had no idea it was going to be any good. So the first thing that happened was, then Mary Hartman went on the air, and when Mary Hartman went on the air, it hit the cover of every major magazine from Time to Rolling Stone in less than six weeks, and it was the original water cooler show. Because the way Norman finally got it on the air was he called up all the independent station owners and at his expense flew them to California, invited them to his home for dinner 
so they could see that he wasn't crazy. And the next morning showed them Mary Hartman and tried to get them to individually buy it. It was wow. like a UJA meeting, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and he went around and one station owner who owned five stations said, I'll take it. So then everybody fell in line. And when it went on the air, in one city, it was on at four in the afternoon. In another, it was on at 11 at night. In another, it was just all over the place. But what Norman had actually done was he had invented syndication. Because nobody had done that before. Good night. And then it went on and it was this phenomenon. Now, in the meantime, it, in the time it took Norman to sell it, I had taken the job at uh, MTM and timed out that when I finished my commitment there, I could go back and be the director of Mary Hartman when it started out. But the second show I directed there was Chuckles the Clown, which was the I'm Mary Tyler. I'm not familiar Tyler. with that. Oh, oh you got Mary go Tyler Moore? Yeah. I loved that show when I was a kid. Oh, you got to go look on YouTube after we talk. You can find the full episode. But um, that show went on the air. That episode went on the air. And the New York Times called it the funniest half hour ever on television. And eventually it was selected as the best uh, half hour ever on television by TV Guide. And this was the second thing I ever directed. Directed there. by Joan Darling. Darling, you're right. So after that, then I became a commodity. See, at that time, they were trying to get black people jobs and trying to get women jobs in television. And there I was. So uh, everybody could kind of get publicity from hiring me and all that kind of stuff. And also one of my favorite stories about this is <clears throat> I worked at Universal in a series. So I knew Sid Sheinberg and Lou Wasserman um, from, you know, who were the bosses. Mm -hmm. And I was driving off the lot when I was on there directing in my little yellow convertible with the top down. And at Universal, at the gate, sometimes there would be a lineup of cars waiting to get off the gate. And sitting opposite the lineup of cars was Lou and Sid were sitting, getting the sun in their suits and ties. And Sid saw me and said, hey, Joan. I said, hey, Sid. He said, what are you doing on the lot? I said, I'm directing Rich Man, Poor Man. And he said, oh, God, he said, if only you were black. <laughs> so they put me to them. It's like you, two birds with one stone. Yeah. If only you were black. That's, so how did you respond to that one? Oh, I howled with laughter. <laughs> yeah. Fifteen years later, I was still directing. Yeah, and it's funny because then you went on to, you were actively involved in directing shows of Mary Tyler Moore, MASH, the Bob Newhart show, and all three of those shows I, I watched when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. And I loved them all. Like, can I brag to say that I know the person who actually influenced why those shows worked? No, but I would love to hear. What? Who it, you say, oh, now. Oh, yeah, I you like somebody you know. No, oh, yeah. yes, you yeah. like because yeah. there's a common thread. Like you were involved in Mash, you're involved in Mary Tyler Moore, you're involved in Bob Newhart. Yeah, Newhart, I wasn't. It was oh. on the lot at the same time. Okay, but I, okay. I didn't do Newhart, but I did okay. do Mash, and I did um, oh a whole you know Magnum PI and all of those shows. But but the tone of the comedy from because of Mary Hartman. Mm -hmm. There was a show called Soap, which was a direct ripoff of Mary yes. Harmon. But 
the, I really changed how directors directed sitcoms because I directed them like plays. Hmm. They used to do, you know, people would take three steps, stop, say a joke, wait for the laugh, and then move on. But I directed them like they were real plays and the audience had to catch up. And they, that hadn't been on television before. And, and of course, MASH was also like that. MASH and I were a very good match. One, they were the nicest humans on the planet. Everybody connected with that show. And uh, that, the show I did for them was very successful. Um, so, Yeah, I, I actually wrote down something that uh, Louise Laster said about you. She said, Joan was Joan, and Joan did it the way she did it. <laughs> what is that way? Um, it's the Mike Nichols way. <laughs> I wanted to show it like it really is. Mm. That's one. But the other thing is, as you know from us getting to know each other, you know, and, and all of that, I... I find just about everything on the planet funny. Ironically funny often, but funny. Um, and I loved, and this came from the improvisational theater because I, what I basically did with a company of actors was taught them in Mary Hartman to play ball. So they would do things that weren't scripted when we were shooting because they knew I would love it or I wouldn't use it, I'd just shoot it again. Um, but there was a, uh, uh, Joan's way of doing it is, one, we should, I mean, seriously, one, we should all have a good time or there's no point in showing up. Right. That's what. Two, um, when I directed plays, you know, have you, did you ever see those ads, Where's Waldo? Yeah. They're big, yeah, everybody's screaming and they're looking for the one guy. I would announce when I did a play, I would bring the whole company together. One of the first things I'd say is, look, Usually what happens in theater is somehow somebody gets designated as the one person that nobody likes <laughs> and everybody complains about it. Right. I said, in our company, that's going to be Waldo. Hmm. Waldo is the one that nobody's going to like. Yes. So, I, and you know what, what I'm, tone I'm setting. Yeah. Uh, I'm setting the tone of, of what I like. I like to have a good time. And I love more than anything to be surprised on the mm. set. Oh, when something happens that I never dreamt of, but I know that I'm the farmer that prepared the soil so that the seed would grow. But there are a couple of jokes in the culture that came from Mary Hartman that weren't there before. Um, there's one joke where, because, uh, the, because the kids just did it without telling me. They were always loving to surprise me and make me laugh. Um, but Mary Hartman is dealing with, uh, with, uh, little Willie Jessup, the psychotic killer who's hidden out in a store and the whole town is gathered around the store and she's trying to talk him down. And, uh, she comes out of the store for a second, opens the door and says, does anybody have a Valium? And mm -hmm. the company, every hand came out. And so there were like 25 hands holding Valiums. Incredible. Yeah, you know, I saw that one a couple of times. And, um, and uh, you know, I remember another time I had a 12-year-old actress who played Mary Hartman's daughter, and they were having a conversation in the kitchen, and the daughter was sitting in, the, in one of the chairs at the kitchen table, at, one, at the left-hand end of the kitchen table. And, and as she talked, and her mother was nagging her, 
she started to slide down in her chair. And, and she just kept sliding and sliding and sliding until all you could see were her eyes at the top of the chair. And again, I, I can't remember laughing harder at anything and, and thinking to myself, a 12-year-old yeah. thought that up and did it. Wow. And that was truthful. Yeah. That's the thing about the mic thing. Yeah. It, 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 I can't stand lies in art. Mm. I can't stand expedience in art. Uh, I hate, and I'm always, the word I use is cynical. Hmm. When you see something in a movie that you know they put in because they think it will make the audience like it. Mm-hmm. I find that cynical. Yep. And I don't, I just, that's just not what I enjoy. I just enjoy losing my breath with shock and delight. That's my favorite thing. Losing your breath with shock and delight. Yeah. Oh, I wrote something down. I just, re- I'm going to read this to you. Hang on, because uh, I read it the other day. I forgot I wrote it down and talk about cool. Well, that concludes part one of my conversation with Joan, which serves as a great primer for part two, where we go deeper into dinosaur farts and a much needed existential reckoning calling us to face ourselves like never before. Peace to you until then, and bye-bye for now.